Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, it's been a little while since we've done an interview. I don't just want to have place fillers. I want to bring people to interview for you on the Disruptive Entrepreneur that meet the brand and concept of the podcast, the Disruptive Entrepreneur. They're disruptive, they're innovative, they're unique. They're maybe not necessarily the biggest known celebrities in the world saying the same messages. And Dame Stephanie Shirley definitely fits the bill. So it will be worth the wait, I promise. Now, you're in for a little treat here. Uh, first off is uh, Dame Stephanie, also known as Steve. Now, uh, it's kind of a, an interesting story as to why she is known as Steve. You'll listen to that in the podcast. She has 2.9 something million views on her TED Talk. Uh, and she said to me when we finished, Rob, can you please help us get this to 3 million? So once you've listened to the podcast, go and watch her TED Talk. She arrived in Britain when she was five years old on the kinder transport. So she's a Jewish refugee. She said she had huge guilt about being one of the few um, children who survived when a million children were, were killed and how she dealt with that to grow a business. She set up an IT company in 1962. I mean, it was unheard of IT in 1962. Talk about disruptive. She had a software company and a woman doing it. And she, she goes into a lot of detail. Really interesting story, not just for women, by the way, but for men too, about how she built a company with a lot of resistance. And she, in fact, she positively stereotyped and had only women. Then she had to change the, her culture when the, um, the Sex Discrimination Act came in in 1975. She talked through the whole journey. She built the company from zero to a thousand staff. She brought management in. She grew it bigger and bigger. Then she sold it. Uh, she made 150 million pounds out of it. And, she, and then since 1993, when she kind of retired, retired, although she'll tell you in the podcast what retirement actually means, uh, she's given over 65 million pounds of it away. She has 100 philanthropic ventures. Uh, it's just a really, really inspiring story. And also halfway through, she kind of puts me right on the back foot because she starts interviewing me. Uh, and, and sort of the second half of the interview is, is, is a dialogue and a conversation, which we both enjoyed. I think we had to sort of half an hour booked in and we ended up going for nearly an hour. So I think you will love this. If you want to balance capitalism and philanthropy and you want to make a lot of money and do good, and you've often thought, should I give to charity or set up my own cause? And, um, you know, how can I be a multimillionaire or just financially free? And also spend a lot of my time helping causes, giving money away. And how can I balance that and, and not have the guilt of making a lot of money? And I think Dame Stephanie Shirley has done that as well as anybody you'll ever meet. So let's jump straight in to the interview with Steve. Dame Stephanie, thank you for doing the podcast. It's great to be here. Now, I've been fascinated. The lovely ladies who have, have brought us into your home, thank you for agreeing to come to your home to do it, have been calling you Steve. There must be a story behind that. Well, it's actually a very significant story because my business days go back to the days when women really were not expected to 
run a financial services company mm. or perhaps, yes, a little tea shop or a hat shop, that would be fine. <laughs> um, so when I set up in the computer industry, uh, this was software, people laughed at me, Rob, because they laughed because software was at that time given away with free with the hardware mm. and women running a sizable business, because eventually we, I ran it until it was about a thousand strong, and then our professionals came in and really grew it and, and in profit also. But they laughed also because I was a woman, and I would be sending out masses of sales letters, you know, literally by the dozen, mm. to various people introducing my services, and um, getting absolutely no reply whatsoever. And um, my dear husband, um, who's much too shy to come on this, <laughs> um, he suggested that I use the family nickname, not Stephanie Shirley, that double feminine, the family nickname of Steve Shirley. Aye. And, you know, people started replying to my letters and I began to get meetings and I had a good story to tell, so we eventually got going. And it stuck? It stuck. Well, I like it also. Mm. It takes me back to... Um, the 60s when I probably did my most creative work because mm. I find building a business is extremely creating, mm. creative. Um, I would love to be able to do pottery or art or something like that. I used to knit but that's about the only craft type of thing that I do. Um, but I do feel that growing an organisation is also creative mm. and of course it's wealth creating. Yeah. So it's very, this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur, and I think it's a very disruptive thing to call yourself by a man's name, but sounds like a very clever thing to do, which opened doors in business that... I'm sure I'm not the only person to do it, because there are lots of these androgynous names. Mm. You know, I worked with a girl called, a woman called Joe jo Connell. Um, I, the, one of my PAs is Leslie, and you, you know, unless you yeah. know how it's spelled, you really don't know. Mm. So... Um, I think women play these sorts of little games as any way of getting in through the door. Mm. And I guess the, the world for women in business must have dramatically changed since when you started. Or would you like it to change some more? I'm really bitterly disappointed how slow the movement has been um, and how aggressive some people have reacted to women's ambitions. Mm. And you think, do you not think that maybe work of, say, Sheryl Sandberg, Oprah Winfrey, Ariane Huffington, do you think that, that they're not maybe showing women what you can do? Yes, I think women are really only going to do well when there are plenty of women leaders, so they're setting a, a, a model for a different form of leadership mm. rather than the very sort of macho command and control style that yeah. certainly was the norm in most of my business life. Mm. Um, things have changed, obviously, when young women talk to me about the difficulties that they're having, particularly, for example, in raising uh, venture capital. Um, I think, oh, yes, oh, that's very tough and so on. Um, but it's nothing like what, what it was in my day. Mm. And um, But it's still tough. Mm. And... In a sense, that selects out the strongest, the brightest, the most innovative, the most disruptive, the most resilient people, um, because it is difficult. Mm. And that brings out perfection, not mm. perfection, brings out 
drive and energy. So we'll come back to that in a minute. I'd love to go back to the days when you started out because you weren't born in this country, is that right? No. Um, I came to this country in 1939. When as... I was about minus 45 yeah, well, years old. Well, thank you old. very I'm sorry. much. <laughs> no, but this is inspiring for me. So, <laughs> um, it, it was not a good time to be Jewish in those days. And um, I came together with 10,000 other unaccompanied children to England. And that's had an enormous impact um, on my life and certainly in my business life. Refugee status has very clearly been correlated with entrepreneurism. Mm. And I think it's because, in my case, I definitely felt I, 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 I needed to uh, give back to the country for the welcome that it had given me. And I think today we're not quite so welcoming to refugees in, in Britain as we were um, 70 years ago. The material deprivation of being a refugee is important. I mean, I have nothing of my heritage. Uh, when I first had a bit of money, I used to buy myself um, jewellery that looked as if I could have inherited it because I had nothing. Mm. And that does something to it, to you. But far more important is the sort of disruption that happens in your life. Um, new family, new language, new food, new nationality, new everything. And that gives you... Well, it gave me the ability to cope with change. Mm. Having dealt with that, nothing much was going to be throw me anymore, Rob. That resilience is very important to entrepreneurs. Mm. I think it, one thing I've picked up, knowing your story, and I am, I'm very much a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he says a similar thing. He says, I'm an immigrant. I came here with nothing. America embraced me. I'm so grateful for yeah, it. And he's like a bigger fan of America than yeah. Americans. And I think they feel like this resilience this you know I've had hardship you know I am um, I can be resourceful and creative yeah. and and a lot of people are saying that the millennials maybe don't have that as much and do you think you know being a forgive the rough crude word but an immigrant and you know going through all that hardship when you were young do you think that gave you that entrepreneurial spirit the statistically ability? so and mm. I'm sure emotionally so because really I've got to survive I'm a survivor mm. and so how can someone of the modern world who, you know, they haven't had the hardship that you have. And I know it's, you think that it's nice to be not have the hardship, but in, in a lot of ways, if you've never seen trouble or difficulty and you've never had it hard, you don't know what that's like. like my son is six years old and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty wealthy and he's never seen anything difficult. Oh, yeah. And I don't want him to grow up to be spoiled. Well, it's one of the things that you need to open up for mm. him in his life, that he sees how other people live and goes and works in Africa or wherever, mm. where you actually sort of see it's not always quite so easy for people to be comfortable mm. in their own shoes. Yeah. So your first business that you set up, what was it? I set up my business in the thing that I've loved and, and I knew about it, but I also loved it. I love software. I found the computer industry absolutely fascinating. I could not believe that I should be paid so well for doing something that I enjoyed so much. and. So my company was a software company in the days when nobody else was paying for software at all. It was just sort of given away free with the hardware. But it, that wasn't really its purpose. It was a social business and it was part of the crusade for women. I was sick and tired of being patronised as a woman as I'd been patronised, if not worse, um, as a Jewish child. 
um, I was sick and tired of not having that control over my own future. And it became a crusade. The very first minute in the company's annals was um, this, I don't think I called it company, uh, but this organisation will provide jobs for women with children. Which we take for granted now, but back then saying something like that must have been oh, rebellious to oh, say the least. You know, going on working after, you know, you stopped your job when you married, yet alone when you had children. Um, I, I mean, basically, I soon realised that, you know, you had to not study, but develop and grow. And, and then I started talking about careers for women with children. And then I, a little bit later on, a lot of women were obviously caring for elder, elderly parents or disabled partners. And it became for women with dependents. And then in 1975, 13 years from the company's startup, equal opportunities legislation came in in Britain. Mm. And that meant it was illegal to have our pro-female wow. policies. Good example of unintended consequences, really. Mm. My little woman's company had to let the men in. Right. And, and how did you go through that change? Because, I mean, the version of that today is, you know, reg regulatory change. How, how did you... Um innovate through that? We certainly opened it up to men, whereas previously not only had we been refusing male applicants, um, but we were actively discouraging them by being you know, positively discriminating for women. So the first lot of employment of men was not very successful. We didn't know quite how, how, how to do it. Well, imagine the culture for the man coming in as well. <laughs> well, they all came in for the wrong reasons. Right, of course, <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking that <laughs> yeah. myself, yeah. Um, but we eventually mastered that, and mm. um, the company became well-balanced between the sexes, which mm. isn't really as it should be, and, and as it proves to be very efficient, really, yeah. to have that mix of skills. Mm. I, I think it's a shame all the prejudicing that goes on and we've got a company where many of the people in the high level of management are women mm -hmm. and, and I take the view that the, the best person for the job is the best person yeah. for the job and um, we've had a company when we've been we've not decided this but we had quite a lot of men in the company and it, it becomes mm. a bit testosterone yes. fueled and then when there's been a lot of women it also has its own energy that it brings um, I, I just think it's good to have the best person in the job our MD is a woman um, I just think they have the best person for the job. I think this is the problem of some of the sort of legislation now of having people are lobbying to have a certain proportion of women on boards and mm. so on. So it means that you are making appointments on the basis of gender rather than meritocracy. Mm. And that can work against you if you're mm. just taking people on in order, I, I need somebody old, I need somebody black. Yeah. You know. It helped me, though, because I got onto all sorts of boards and, and um, not-for-profit um, opportunities, mainly the public service, because they were always looking for a woman. They, you know, the, the people had realised we need some women on there. And there mm. was one black guy and there was me, and we, we always turned up on these various committees. <laughs> <laughs> there weren't many of us around. Of course, yeah. I mean, it must be a completely different world now. To how yes. it was in the 60s. I mean, I was just thinking when you were talking about software in the 60s, I mean, didn't even know you had computers in the 60s. So you, mu you must have been... were enormous things, as big as this room. Yeah, but I mean, that must be, you yeah. must have been so ahead of your time. 
Yes, I think I was. Mm. And, and I mean, I always like doing new things and looking to see what's coming now. Mm. Business has certainly changed in that the IT industry allows businesses to develop in quite different ways and with less demand on capital. Mm. You know, you hear of um, companies that are sizable uh, that can raise money to, to really take them um, public. You said you built it to a thousand people before you yeah. got external. Did you, did you sell it or did you? No, no, no. I brought in professional managers. Right. Um, <clears throat> and that took me quite a long time to do. Because I think entrepreneurs, we, we, we drive organisations in different ways, largely dashing around in all directions. And yeah, creating chaos and loads of people will tidy yes. it up. Um, and there comes a time when you can't run an organisation anymore. Mm. And, and it became... A, um, you know, I, ju I just felt that I was locked into this organisation that I had created, of which I was very proud, which was doing not well in terms of profits, but it was doing well in terms of growth and reputation. Mm. Um, and I, I desperately needed to get out. So it wasn't hard for you to bring in external help? Yes, it was hard. Um, it took me three attempts. Because right. I, I previously I'd always thought if... if I had to fill appointments from outside candidates. I'd somehow failed. I hadn't succeeded in growing my own colleagues. I hadn't succeeded in having that tranche of management coming up and mm. snapping up my heels. To have to go outside, I, I found, was a bit of a failure. But it was very, very successful. Mm. Um, they brought in somebody just right. There's a couple of things I'll pick up on there which I think should be inspiring to people listening. Number one is your self-awareness. Because, you know, I'm a, I started my own company and I've built teams like you have not a thousand people. We have about 75 people in our office. But it starts to get heavy. It does. It? it gets different. And yeah. like, you know, I, don't, some, I go into the office and I don't know the names of some yeah. other people. And, yeah. um, you know, they had the personal touch with me when we were eight people. Um, and, you know, they could knock on the door yeah. of the and founder. You knew, well, I always knew when the, you know, somebody had measles at home and yeah. that sort of thing. And then when you're big, they don't know you and they can't access you. And, you know, when you're starting up, you can make a decision and you're doing it that afternoon, yes. you're agile. And then when you've got a thousand people, it's yeah. got to go. So I think it's great self-awareness yeah. on your part to know, I took it here. Yeah. I, should have, I should have done it earlier. But I can't yeah. maybe yeah. take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing you said was, I, I tr third time lucky. You know, a lot of people who listen to my podcast, they're thinking about hiring their first PA or a oh. few staff. And like they get one person and it goes wrong and they go, oh, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. But it, that's a bit like dating, having a bad date and going, oh, I'm never dating again. You know, it's like you've just got, sometimes you've just got to keep trying, haven't you? Was there a specific point in your entrepreneurial journey where the, the light bulb went off for you for philanthropy? Or do you think you just carried that with you from when you came to this country and it was always I think I've you? always had it. I mean, um, my family was very much in public service. You, that's what you did if you had intellect or if you had position or if you had influence. Um, you work for the public good, and that turned into philanthropy. I don't want to be too personal, but I, I was very, very depressed when I first came to this country because of the so-called survivor guilt. You know, I could not come to terms with the fact that I had been saved when so many people died at that time, including a million children. And that led to a most horrendous depression. And of course, the one treatment for depression, though it's never called that, is compassion. Yeah. And that's really led me to be a, 
um, fervent philanthropist. Uh, uh, th this is what I now do. People may not understand what a philanthropist does, but this is how I spend my life, and I enjoy so doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm now a very happy person. And entrepreneurism made me very happy for many years, but it was always sort of ambivalent. It had some tension to it. Whereas when I'm working in the philanthropic area, I feel really good. Mm. So you said a lot of people maybe don't understand what philanthropy is. What's your definition of it? I think people confuse philanthropy with charity. Um, if you put a coin into a street person's hat, um, th that's a generous act of charity. But once you start thinking of that street person, why is he here? Why isn't she in a hostel? What can society do? Then you start thinking, then that's being philanthropic. Mm. Um, and that's true whether you're giving 50p or 50,000 pounds. Um, and that um, wanting to make a difference, a positive difference, obviously, um, is what I think holds philanthropists together. But we all have different motives. I give to balance all that I was given as a child. Other people give for reasons of faith. Uh, other people give for reasons of status. There was an entry into some elite group. Mm. Um, some people want um, the building to be labeled. There's, so-and-so did this. I know what drives me. Do you know what drives you? Me, yeah, yeah, I do. It's a, it's a balance of wanting to create something bigger and more memorable about my life as yeah, a story. So it is. Um, I was here. Yes. Um, yeah, and also um, maybe making up for some voids as a child, some needs I didn't feel I got met. So I think I'm driven both by the yeah. the desire to become something and maybe the pain of not. I mean, I have not got the the story you have. So you know, like I was raised in a very relatively privileged way. Um, but I was a very overweight child and I, I just felt like I... Were you teased? Yeah, a lot. But a yeah. lot of it was also in my own head and I imagined it. Because yeah. you only need to see a little bit of evidence to think that everyone's doing yeah. that. And I, I think a lot of my drive is for not I'm not enough. And so, you know, like more podcasts, writing more books, more turnover. Yeah. I'm setting up my new foundation. It's almost like filling that void. And um, I, used to, I used to feel a lot of guilt or that that was wrong to do. But in my studies... Oprah Winfrey was abused as a child and she's still yes. trying to fill that void and look what she's done amazing things in the planet so I'm trying to use my own voids of you know where I didn't feel maybe I got the the love and acceptance I wanted in more positive ways. Do you think that self-awareness has helped you? Yes for sure yes. I think I wasn't self-aware when I was an artist and when I went to university I only went to university because it was People, thing to do. Yeah, people thought, yeah. well, if you're smart, you go to uni, yeah. and if you're not, you don't. So I went, well, I don't want people to think I'm not smart. So I went to university, but I went pin the tail on the donkey for my degree. And then when I was there a weekend, I was like, I don't want to do this. No. But I didn't want to leave because I didn't want people I didn't know to go, Rob, you're not smart. It's, it's ridiculous to make those kind mm. of, but like I didn't have the knowledge, the courage, the volition, I suppose. Um, it was very, it's very liberating. I, I felt it when you said it earlier. When, when, when you find something that's a passion as well as a profession, mm. for me that was liberation. That for me, eleven. Well, this years is ago. what one always says to entrepreneurs: find something that's a passion mm. and get trained in it, and then just go and do it. Mm. So, this philanthropy. How are you able 
to sustain your own lifestyle? Because I am, I know a lot of people who want to be philanthropists that listen, but they also need to get the mortgage paid and everything else. And you know, I think a lot of people see capitalism and earning and philanthropy as two completely separate ventures where you can only do philanthropy when you've made a load of money. Now I have a view that it's not the same, but I'd love your view on it. Can you be a philanthropist and still get the bills paid? Well, we all have time and skills and contacts that we can share. Um, and philanthropy, as I said earlier, is not a question of just having big money. It's using money in a, in a philanthropic way or using your life in a philanthropic way. So I don't see that tension. There's also a sort of continuum. It's no longer um, a charity, you know, regulated by the Charity Commission, and then there's a company regulated by a company's house. Um, but there's now a sort of continuum of social businesses. That there are a whole lot of new words for different combinations of mm. making money in, in an organisation and doing good. Mm. And I think that's pretty healthy. Yeah. Um, the, the Americans really have very much more black and white. You know, they have companies, and they have charities, and they're regulated in a completely different way anyway. Um, but um, I think we have things pretty well in this country. I think a lot of people think I'm foolish um, to maintain a relatively modest um, lifestyle that is fine as far as my husband and I are concerned, um, and not do some of the things that money might allow us to have a yacht and sail around the mm. Mediterranean, wouldn't it be lovely? But, but that's not who you are. That's not, that's not your story. Yeah. That's, not, that's uh, not how you were yeah. raised. But I mean, I still like nice clothes or jewellery or whatever it is. And mm. I like my food. Mm. And, and What are your pleasures? Oh, now you're talking. Um, I like watches, I must admit. I noticed that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> trying to cover them like um, I always pretend I can know how to work this one. Oh, this right. is the Apple Watch. <laughs> wow, that's great. No, no I mean, I, like, um, I love doing this. Yeah. And my business really is my passion. Um, my son's um, one of the best young golfers in the world. He's six and he played in the World Under Six Championships. And oh, I didn't even yeah, know Yeah, no, I know. It's crazy. They're so sweet watching them play. Um, is, is it healthy to do that sort of well, exercise? Well, that could be a whole new episode on its own because I've had yeah. my ups and downs in that. I yeah. think... Um, he, at the age of four and five, he was so good. And, and I think I got a bit carried away. Um, and maybe I, I got a bit technical on him. And, you know, maybe tried to encourage him to practice maybe like an older kid would. Yeah. And, um, and then he started to enjoy it a bit less towards the middle of this year. And I've stepped back a bit now and made it fun, 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 fun. And he's loving it at the moment. Um, mm. so, one so are you serious about seeing him develop as a golfer? Yeah, well, it's funny because I think often we're living through our children the things we wanted for our own yeah, life. And I think, beware, um, beware. <laughs> well, I think that I'm admitting it and I yes. think a lot of people wouldn't admit it. Yeah. But if you think about it when you're raising your children, you want to protect them from the things that you felt yeah. you experienced that you didn't like. And you want to show them the parts of the world and upbringing that, that mm. you like. For example, I feel like I should never send Bobby to boarding school because I went to boarding school and I hated it. Yeah, you know, I so went to boarding I'm, school and I hated I, it. <laughs> I like cried to my yeah. mum on the phone every weekend. Yeah. And um, so, like, so is that right or wrong? Well, in reality, it's neither because Be sending him to boarding school could be a good thing that makes him, him independent. Yeah. So. Yes, I'm trying to raise Bobby to be great at golf because I wanted to be great at golf and I wasn't. So I'm, I'm fully aware of this vicarious thing mm. that's going on. 
but I thought about it a lot before he was born. And it, the great etiquette, the people you meet through golf is amazing. There's, mm-hmm. It can be really great for business. It's the sort of sport where you can play when you're 20, 30, 40, 50, And you can 60, play against a player who's not so good or yes. is much better than you are. And it's still yeah. a So you can be six years old thing. and win competitions on the handicap system. So I have thought about it a lot. And I know the world will challenge me yeah. in that when I want him to be what I want him to be, it will throw me a challenge because... Um, one of my mentors said to me, Rob, you're naive if you think you're just teaching your kids. They teach you as much about life as you teach them. Because until you've got kids, you don't really know that because you have this fantasy that I'm going to raise them to be this and do this and they're going to be as so if, well, so well behaved. And then in Waitrose, they're having a massive yeah. and you're like, ah. Oh. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I obviously hope for him and for me that he becomes a great but Golf girl. is an interesting one because... Um, there's a sort of maxim, really, if you want to know what a man is like, play golf with him. Mm. Tells you a lot about his character. Yeah, I think it does. And, and I think that um, something with, again, like how you raise your kids based on your own failings is um, I got good at quite a lot of things, but never great at one thing. And the recurring story of my life to my mid-20s where it was a pretty much a failure was I tried this, got a ride, and it got bored. Tried this, got a ride, and it got bored. And I just used to spend my life... Do you think entrepreneurs, though, almost need to be generalists? Well, I think if you're too generalist and you don't focus enough on one thing, you know, like, if if you were setting up a new company every six months in new different niches, you wouldn't have built a 1,000 staff. No. So maybe you need to be a generalist. But I might have seeded different yeah. things. So like when you're golf, you've got to be good at the long game, the short game. You've got to be yeah. strategically good. There's the mindset. So I think a generalist within an envelope. But I'd go from architecture to art to cricket to martial arts. And the thing is, each time I'm going into the new thing, I can't carry my experience. Mm. So I would have thought most of that would have gone over, actually, the things that really matter. It was only when I stuck to property for a decent amount of time. Yeah. That I actually finally made an. A, a, well, also you become skilled. Yeah. Yes. You've got to. You've got to I do mean, something. Well, long you know, enough. we're good at the things that we enjoy. Yeah. So obviously it was the right thing for you. Yeah. So I, mean, I think. And I'm we tr- enjoy the things that we're good at. I mean, there's a great pleasure in yes. becoming skilled and, and knowing that you know really I'm doing this damn sight better than I did last year. Mm. And and also it, when you really enjoy something, when you get the challenges, you almost enjoy them as well because oh, yes. in something you don't really enjoy, any problem is like oh well I can't be bothered mm. with that. But when it's a problem, in like a coder who's it. got a problem, yeah. they stay up all night oh, trying yes. to work out. Yeah. And, and I think that like you need that as an entrepreneur, don't you? You need to look at a problem instead of it being onerous. It's. I, I think you've focused on a, a real thing that happens with entrepreneurs. People view us for our successes because that's how we've survived and therefore they, they know about it. But I mean, most of us have failures all over the place and we've just recognised them, brushed ourselves down and moved on. Mm. Um, and of course, nobody remembers the failures that I've had because they've got one or two successes. Mm. Um, and people are very positive about that. Mm. And I think you have to embrace failure as an entrepreneur. And, you know, I think I was scared of it so much in my 20s. I never tried anything unless I felt comfortable with it. And therefore, I kept myself safe because yeah. all, all the results <clears throat> is on the other side of safe. For example, you having a very female culture in, in a world where it, that's risky. And, um, you know, but, but when you take those risks, that's when you get the rewards. Uh, I, it's always inspiring for me to talk to people like you who've built capitalist organisations, but with uh, 
love of philanthropy and, and using it as a, a vehicle to make a difference in the world. I really try to always do as I would be done by, mm. and it's as simple as that. Uh, so um, I've uh, done a little bit of work in Saudi Arabia, for example, which I did not dislike as much as I expected. Um, I mean, they had very odd ideas for women, you know, and again, I was role modeling for women because women couldn't do this and women couldn't do that. It was awful, awful really, but it was quite... Um, so I've worked, done a bit in Japan, uh, been in Australia, which is lo lovely culture. I like the Australians. Um, in America, of course. Mm. When I started tr trying to extend um, internationally, it was driven partly because I'd got this professional manager in and I was trying to get away from the business. So I was setting up the international subsidiaries and set up in Denmark. Twelve years later, I think we sold it to the staff. Um, I set up in Holland and umpteen years later, we sold that to a customer. Uh, set up in the States, to West Coast and East Coast, and within about three years we'd closed the West Coast. Um, the East Coast went on and, and, uh, for quite some time, and then eventually that was closed. Interestingly, in 1978, we started, I was writing papers about um, software going out to India, and um, it all seemed very crazy. Um, I was writing papers about it, trying mm. to get people interested, trying to get the government interested. And 20 years later, we were doing it. And eventually, about half the staff were in India. That was the one that right. really, wow. really took off. Mm. And I wouldn't, I would have thought it would have been one of the European ones, or perhaps mm. Germany, where my links might have been valuable, I don't know. Mm. But anyway. Yeah, what's next then? Indeed. Because yes. I'm getting the impression you're not finished yet. And someone like just laughed over there, so that must be an <laughs> Um I like to do new things. I like to make new things happen. So in philanthropy, I tend to seek to do it not only just better than I did last year, um, but also to do new things that I and nobody else was previously doing. So currently... Um, my foundation has been working for 20 years and we've just paid a third-party consultant to evaluate the impact of our giving on the various um, benef beneficiaries. And that's been an interesting exercise. Mm. Um, done about 100 projects. Wow. You see, when my foundation and... and it depends what you want to do with yours. But we don't just write checks. I never just write a check. Um, I support a project. The project is very often initiated by me, but if it's something that somebody else has come, come up with and that I think is good. But I will support it with management. I will support it with contacts. I will support it with encouragement in particular. Um, and I find that gives me, uses all my business skills, not just piggybacks on my business's mm. success 20 years ago. I mean, I've been retired 20 years. And what do you think drives that? Because, you know, you could have retired and retired. Well, what did I do? Well, that's my answer, but I think a lot of people have this 
illusion that they can retire and do nothing. <laughs> um, one of the nice things, have you read my book? No, I'm afraid no, I, I haven't, but I will, yeah, I will be yeah. now. So. Um, and that's being made into a film. Oh, wow. And that's, I was told about that, yeah. Yeah, that's a lovely thing to be thinking of yeah. doing something completely new about which I know next to nothing mm. um, and see if we can make a great film. Mm. And so, so then what, what keeps you wanting to do more, to create more? I hate to be bored. Right, there you go. We got, we got it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think that I've, um, most entrepreneurs I've met, they have this itch to always... Whether it's creation, do something, grow, disrupt. You know, for me, I know there's a balance of wanting more appreciation from people or to prove something to the world mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. you know, I can do something meaningful with my life. It's often a love, void we're trying to fill. Yeah, I love that word disruption. So let's spend a minute on that. Um, the first time I was called disruptive, I thought it was a negative thing, mm. that, like a child disrupting the classroom <laughs> yeah. or something. But now I realise that it is something that really applies to me and to most um, entrepreneurs. And the, um, it is disruptive people who, who take those step functions and you sort of think, well, how come that, that, I, that I can think of organisations that don't or, already exist, or I don't think in terms of improving something that already exists. And if there's an answer, um, it is that I haven't been educated. I mean, one of my hobby horses is that I wish I'd gone to university. I wish I'd gone to university because I think I would have enjoyed it. Um, but in fact, because I knew nothing about business, I was able to do new things mm. in business, pay people in different ways, employ people in different ways, market in different ways yeah. that were quite new. And I think- And you probably I'm, wouldn't have been taught them at university. You don't, I, nobody told me that you were not supposed to do that. No. Uh, Harry and I, Harry does all the filming yeah. and the audio. We were talking about this when we stopped at Starbucks. It's like, I'm definitely not anti-university because if you're only a doctor, a dentist or a lawyer in a regulated professional industry, yeah. that's the best place to go. Because I think a lot of people just assume to me I'm telling them not to go to university. But being a philanthropist, <clears throat> setting up your disruptive enterprise, yeah. changing the world, create, making your passion your profession, creating something, solving a problem, doing something meaningful, you know, Dyson with the vacuum cleaner or Richard Branson. They don't teach you that stuff at university. No. So if that's who you want to be. There's a lovely fact I heard about Dyson was that in his first vacuum cleaner, which is... Well, we all, I suppose, remember him from, that's a Dyson fan. There you the go. Um, <laughs> We've all bought stuff we don't need from him, just to, yeah. <laughs> well, um, what they're going to say, um, I think he went through a thousand models mm. before it went on the market. Yeah. On and on. A, this and put himself it, into millions of pounds worth yes, of personal debt. that's right. Yeah, which is a great, I guess, advocate yeah. for I mean, he's following very, dream. very innovative. He's a good engineer as well. Mm. So you're very passionate about helping women find their passion, their profession. Yes. Um, and of course, this is for women and men, the podcast, but just specifically for women at the moment. I have so many mumpreneurs and um, inspiring female entrepreneurs that listen. What advice could you give for them finding their passion profession merge? It's fairly obvious advice really is to try a lot of things and find out which, which really switch you on. Mm. Um, and if you don't like it, move, move on. Mm. Sometimes it's more difficult to move on than others. But, but you know, again, do entrepreneurs, do we take more risks? Do we take risks with our lives? Yes, we do. And most things 
if it doesn't work, you can stop and do something mm. else. Um, and I think um, that that sort of experiment, it's a scientific approach. If it works, you do more of it. And if, if it doesn't work, you, you stop and try something else. And it's as simple as that. You do that with your life. Mm. Um, I don't think women always know what is the cost of so-called success. Um, and if they do, they may not be prepared to pay that cost. Mm. But that's true of men as well. Um, but it, it, you know, if you're going to break through the glass ceiling, there's going to be some pain. Mm. And um, it's all very well being the first this, first woman this, the only woman that. And that's a matter of great pride for me. Um, but there's still things that women can do today that's the first. Never had one of those, never had one of those, never had one of those. So the, those sorts of successes are, are open to women all over the world. I think that you made it sound very simple and obvious, but I think what you said had a great wisdom. You said, try something, try something, try something. If you don't like it, move on. If you like it, scale up. And that's business. I mean, in tech, in IT, you yeah. test this piece of software, it doesn't work. You do version two, version yeah. three. And I think people really worry about having to make a perfect decision. And I think if people just thought, well, I'm going to try this, because if it don't work, I can always make the reverse yeah. decision in yeah. two months. And what, what have I lost? Yeah. And so I think, you know, adding to your point, just try some things. You know, you can try some things evenings and weekends. You're allowed to test. You don't have to find, wait mm -hmm. for the perfect solution. I mean, I've made lots of good decisions because I made lots of bad decisions that preceded the good decisions. What are you looking for when you buy property? Uh, I'm looking for something that I can either buy at uh, good value or I can add value to uh, and then looking at something that's going to produce an income. Uh, capital growth, you get it. We were talking, mm -hmm. weren't we, before we put the cameras on that property just seems to go up. If you're in property long enough, you'll get it. But I don't go for capital growth. I go for um, either uh, you know something that's cheaper than I think it's worth. Mm -hmm. And I do that when I buy watches and cars and everything else. Or... If it's not a market where you can get it cheap because there's a lot of people in it, changing the use can add the value. So we buy distressed shops, we buy old office blocks that are empty or a bit dilapidated, mm -hmm. we turn them into apartments. And we might not get it that cheap for what it is, but when we turn, we're doing 185. Big step. Exactly, when we change the use, that's yeah. when you, you add all the value. Um, so, I mean, Steve Jobs was famous for that. You know, that, you know the touch technology and a lot of the technology on his phone? It, Xerox had it in their test centre, they hadn't worked out what to do with it. Yeah. So disruptive isn't just about creating the new thing, it's, ah, oh, that thing looks interesting, it's but yes. it's not you being used very well, I'm going to use it in the phone. And so, um, so that's, what, that's we, what Bill Gates did, yeah. he, he used other people's patents. Mm, just in a better application, yeah. and like you said, it being a great marketer. Really, yeah. I mean, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, people don't honour it enough, but they're, they're brilliant marketers, mm. getting it out of the world. So yeah, so that's what we, we look for in, a pro in property, how can we add value. One of my mentors sold 7,000 flats before the last recession and he became a billionaire. And he said to me, you're not always going to be able to buy cheap properties, you know, when, mm -hmm. you know, when there's a downturn. So when you can't buy properties cheap and there's a lot of competition, you have to look to add the value somehow. It's an interesting point. And, yeah. and, and, and most of the time adding the value is changing the use. So turning a single let into a holiday let, for example, where you can get sometimes, I'm going to St Andrews for Bobby's British Championships mm -hmm. and I'm paying £350 a just, night just, just to stay in someone's house. Yeah. And so £350 a night, that's, you know, yeah. but what they've done is they've changed the use of it. So yeah, that's what we look to do in mm. property. I, I, I don't get the impression that you're someone who 
is all about accolades. But, I, get, I get a lot. A well, lot this of is it. Is made from this is now, it. And, actually, and, and if you could indulge me to indulge <laughs> you, this would be great. So um, I'd love to know what it takes to become a dame. I mean, I don't have aspirations to be one, but um, <laughs> could you tell us about that and how it happened and what it is? Well, I don't know how it happened because, I, I mean, I've served on the Honours Committee, which actually makes appointments for other people. But the Honours Committee assesses um, names and details of people that are put in front of us. Right. So all these positions come because somebody somewhere has nominated a person. Right. So I can guess who might have nominated me. Um, and that my, my dameship was of which I'm enormously proud, was for services to information technology. People think it was for philanthropy, but it was for my IT work. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's very good for getting seats in a restaurant or something <laughs> like that. Um, works, it's good for table mm. booking, yes. Right. Um, currently, I'm, I have been given many academic honorary awards um, and I like those for two reasons, Rob. Um, partly because I have this little bit of a chip on my shoulder about not having gone to university. And so at least, you know, you get a little bit of a sniff of it. <laughs> I went, uh, got an honorary doctorate from Cambridge recently, wow. which you, you know. Mm. And it was all in Latin. Oh, wow. That there, status <laughs> for you. you that know, is it, brilliant. Isn't it? I mean, it yeah. was just gorgeous it really was lovely so they're very pleasurable and also you, you come across a lot of students there mm. and um, when you see the students walk across the platform getting their degree which they've had to work for um, they are so it's not just the families beaming but mm. i mean the young people themselves um, are, are really excited but recently um it's somewhere around floating. The, the, I, I just got a letter and I thought it was an income tax demand or something <laughs> yeah. like that. And it's a very modest letter, no great big crests or anything on the paper, um, saying that I'd been made a, a, a companion of honour. And um, I, again, I've no idea where that came from. And that was for entrepreneurship and philanthropy. And I'm told of. there's what... 50, 60 people in the whole world. In the whole world, yes. So uh, uh, looking forward to the investiture, buying a new outfit, all those things. <laughs> anyway, you've got to celebrate. <laughs> well, that definitely inspires me because um, if I'm going to be honest, you know, any little accolades I may get, they're not, it's nice to have the accolade, but I, I think it just, it's a manifestation that you're progressing. Yeah, um, but I think also you take it on behalf of your team mm. or on behalf of your industry or on behalf of, in my case, of gender. You know, that you mm. realise that you're modelling for other, other younger people. Mm. Um, and that is important. Yeah. Who inspired you when you were young? Oh, well, my dad always inspired me to yeah. be an entrepreneur because he was what you might call the classic hustler, buying pubs and bars and hotels, making millions, losing it in the recession, making millions again. When yeah. the Gulf War yeah. happened, he had pubs all around the, the business, the um, American air bases. So he had millionaire and then lost again. Um, so he, he always inspired me. And then I suppose I'm really inspired by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've met him and spent some good time with him and just someone who... I'm really ins inspired by people who have had great hardship 
you know, so like yourself mm. coming from a different country um, and, and, and not entitled and not had it handed on a, on a plate. Um, so, I mean, I'm really inspired by him because he, he was the best bodybuilder in the world, best, highest paid, best movie actor in the world. And then, of course, he was became he a governor. Highest, best... At one point, I think it was with twins um, where... He he, um, he also he that paid so much money. Yeah, he? yeah. I mean, I think at one point he was the highest paid actor in the world. Um, he wouldn't be now. I think Dwayne Johnson is now. Um, but he he did a very innovative deal on twins yeah. where and, and he has reinvented himself. Yes, and I he? think that like, that's yeah. inspiring because the reason that's inspiring to me is it proves whatever you want to do, you can, you can do, do it. Do. Yep. You know, just because, you, you know, like he was told he'd never be a bodybuilding world champion because his cars were too small. So he used to go to the gym every day wearing shorts to embarrass himself publicly. And he used to do his calves twice a day when everyone was told to do body parts once or twice a week. So in, in his own way, he was being disruptive. He was going around telling everyone, I'm going to be a famous movie actor. <sighs> I already am. Even before he'd yeah. even taken acting classes. And you know, to be the governor um, is... And of course, now he's a big, big champion for climate change mm. and and, mm. and responsible, you know, like... Um, it brings a, the, what is the governor, what is leadership in a way? When um, Ronald Reagan was elected president, and we won't talk about Trump now, but when he was elected president, I only knew him as a B, B actor movie. Mm. Um, not, he wasn't particularly good. He was quite nice looking, had a nice, interesting voice. Um, they think, what on earth is he doing? But he actually grabbed that job, used his communication skills, yeah. brought in people who could support him on all the other skills, and that's what he did. Mm. He was a very successful president. There's been a lot of studies about the American presidents, and the oh. most successful have been have had people, the least political yeah the least yes. political experience yes. and the yeah. the least successful are the most political experience yeah they know exactly what levers to press yes and, yeah and also if you but think I, mean, I don't know that that's going to be true of, of, of Trump no. because and, and this is definitely not a political broadcast yeah. this podcast so <laughs> yeah um, but I think I, I think there is um, analogies between the two like if you're not politically strong but you're the president you have to rely on other people, people to get your information yeah. and that's what you have to do as an entrepreneur don't you mm -hmm. You have to rely on skilled people, like when you brought management in, because mm. you knew you needed them. And I think, um, you know, I think sometimes as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of pressure on you to make all the decisions and have the vision and work I think that's twenty a hours a day. Desperate mistake that mm. some of us go through. Of course, I, I know it. I've been doing this yeah. for years. Come on, I'll tell you what to do. Yeah. Um, I also found <clears throat> as a manager, excuse me, <clears throat> that when I was, I used to be technically very good, um, and I would sort of say. That's wrong there. You don't do that. Let me show you how to do it, how to do that. Now, oh, I mean, I eventually learned to, to do it completely the other way. That's interesting. I don't understand how that works. You explain it to me and mm. then really, really listen. Mm. And people rose to the occasion. They often had ideas far, far better than I was going to say. And that business of, of listening and learning, and I think that's what entrepreneurs have to be, mm. have to be quite um, uh, pliable in a sense. And also styles and techniques and changes, you know, there are always new things that uh, you can learn from other people. Mm. I've always felt that today is one of the greatest times in history to be an entrepreneur. You know, you've got the internet, you've got social media, you've got the yeah. fiber optics and the speed of light, you get your phone out and you can do anything on it. But I've not got the experience of multiple recessions and going back to the no. 60s that you have. So you've got both sides. Do well, that's you think why you have non, non exactly executive yeah. directors. 
But do you think now is a great time to be an entrepreneur? Do you think it's a great time to be a women entrepreneur? Do you think it's the land of opportunity that I do, or am I being naive? I've worked quite a bit in America, and really, I think America has a lot going for it for the for the entrepreneurs. They've got this get up and go. Mm. They they've got this can do attitude, and here there's still remnants of class, uh, which comes you know from the royals and so on, and who I, just for the record, I think do a great job. But there is this classiness of, of where you went to school, how you speak. Um, I mean, my foster parents um, sent me to the village school and um, I began to speak with a strong Birmingham accent, which, uh, which is mm -hmm. not considered to be a, an educated posh one. <laughs> um, and uh, they were horrified, no child of ours is going to speak like that. So they put me in a little private Roman Catholic convent where I learned to speak properly. And now, of course, I'm very glad to be able to speak the Queen's English because nobody can really tell where I'm from. Mm. Um, and I think there's sorts of remnants, uh, particularly the class system, uh, are going. We are becoming all more global, um, politics aside. Uh, I think people do think more internationally. Um, I'm appalled at Britain leaving Brexit. I'm appalled at Britain leaving Europe because we've had many, many years now of peace. And uh, prior to that, we had nothing but wars. Is it okay if I ask one final question? Of course. And it's a very quick one. Well, it's up to you. But um, I get asked this a lot and I'd love to ask this to you. So if you could go back and start all over again with the, 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 the decades of experience and wisdom you have, might you and would you do anything differently? I don't think so, really. Because... It, I do know that at any time I did the best that I could do in that situation. So I don't have a guilty conscience about, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd done that. Because, you know, it might have been better if I'd done something else. But um, I think because I know I've done my best, I wouldn't have done anything else. I think it is right and proper for me to finish up as an entrepreneur. Um, as I said, my family was all in public service. Um, so it's quite, oh gosh, uh, going into business. Um, but there we go. Mm. And if someone wanted to follow your work or maybe help with some of your causes, is there any way that they can find you? Oh, yes, we have a website. So That'd if somebody great. will tell me what it is. <laughs> Steve yep. Shirley. Yep. So S-T-E-V-E-S-H-I-R-L-E-Y. Ah, oh, and your book. Yes, please give yes, your book sorry. a plug. Yeah. Can yeah. I get it? Oh, please do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't spend all this time without a little bit of a book plug. That's all right. So this is your book. Yeah. Memoir. Ah, memoir. There's a difference between a memoir and an autobiography. And could you tell me? Autobiography is all... I didn't know until this started. Um, it all factual, you right. know, it was Thursday afternoon and yeah. it was the 6th of July and it was raining, all that sort of thing. Whereas this is much more how I remember it. Right. Um, the, what is important from the point of view of uh, um, people, point of... Oh, I've already signed this one. Yeah, what lovely. about a little personal note? <laughs> <if I'm>, <laughs> that would be lovely. Okay. And that's called Let It Go. Is that, yeah. You can find that on Amazon, can you? And, yeah. Do you convert your books into audio books? Yeah. Ah, oh, that's great. Yeah, because I am um, most of the people that watch and listen. Obviously, everyone's listening on podcasts. So, 
more people will probably get the audio version. Can you version. get that though? On, on Audible. On Audible? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephanie. Great to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank you.